We're continuing our study through the book of Acts that we're calling The Church, where we're learning from the first church some lessons that we can apply to our church so that way we can be the church. And today is going to be the last week in our study in Acts for a while. We're going to pick it up again in January, but starting next week, we're going to do a special Christmas sermon series called Vintage Christmas kicking off next week where we're going to be looking back at the birth of Christ and we're going to be pushing past all of the hurry and the worry and the hustle, the greed and consumerism of Christmas and we're going to get back to celebrating the season for the right reason, which is Jesus. Come on, somebody. Jesus is the reason, and so we're going to spend some time over the next couple weeks. Now that the turkey has had its day starting next week, we can finally officially start celebrating Christmas. How many of you in your house, it's already been Christmas for like a month? There we go. Y'all are my people. Our tree is up. It has been since the day after Halloween. Um, we love Christmas at our house, and my girls have already started giving me their, their Christmas wish list. Any parents kind of just threw up in your mouth realizing it's already Christmas. Anybody nervous about it? You're like, I have nothing. See, all year round, here's a little parenting tip. My girls ask me for everything. They're like, Daddy, can I get this? And can I get that? And they'll watch a show on YouTube and they'll be like, hey, can I, I really want this. And I, all year round, here's what I say. I say, maybe for Christmas, right? Write it down, maybe for Christmas. Well, they wrote it down and now I got my list. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's almost Christmas. And I am making my list and I'm checking my budget and it's not in there. Um, but I'm getting ready for Christmas in our house. And, and so I'm going online shopping or looking in the store. And, and here's what I've realized. Either marketers have gotten really lazy or we have gotten really dumb. Here's why I say that. Because every year, they're selling us the same thing, but they're just calling it new. Have you noticed that? Like it's the same exact thing we bought last year, but they've just repackaged it and they're like, it's new, you gotta buy it. For example, last year, my, my daughter Esther, her big Christmas want was a color change Barbie. Oh, she wanted that color changed Barbie. And so we got it. And then so this year she's like, daddy, here's what I want for Christmas. And I'm like, that's a color change Barbie. It's the same thing that I got you last year. She's like, no, it's different. It's, 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 it's new. I was like, what's new about it? She said, it changes to a different color. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not buying you that. Like, you already got toys and you want more, but they're packaging it and they're just saying it's, it's new. But it's not just with toys, but they're doing it with everything, like movies. I don't think Disney's made an original movie since I was in kindergarten. It's the same story with different characters. Marvel, Marvel movies, they're just repackaging the old movie and then selling it to us, which is probably why ticket sales are so low right now for Marvel movies. But it's the same movie, but with, with different characters. They, they do it for like phones. Like right now it's the iPhone 29,000. And people wait in line, they're like, they're like, well, what is it? Did you, did you get the new iPhone? Did you get the new iPhone? Well, what's different about it? Nothing. It's just new. Oh, well, I have to have it then, right? And so what do we do? We spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need. And we don't even know why we do it. But because it's new, we have to have it. And it really got me wondering, like, what is this fascination that, that we have when it comes to 
to new things, whether it's new toys, new gadgets, new clothes, new shoes. What is it about a new house, a new neighborhood, new year, new you that gets us so consumed with this idea of new? And here's what dawned on me this week. It's because inside each and every one of us is a longing for Jesus to make us new. Here's what the author of Ecclesiastes says. He says, God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. There is a God-sized hole in each and every one. There is a, a void in our lives that we can buy things and we can try things and we can work hard and we can do good and we can reinvent ourselves because we want to be made new, but nothing ever truly satisfies until we give our lives to Jesus because Jesus is the only only one and the only way who can make us new. And today we're going to see this reality play out as we continue our study through the book of Acts, as we are learning from Saul as he becomes Paul. We're going to see in Acts chapter 919, we're going to see what happens when you become a Christian. And here's the big idea for the message. If you're taking notes, write this down, that Jesus doesn't make you better. Jesus makes you new. Jesus didn't come just to make you better. Jesus comes to make you new. Christianity is not an add-on to your life. It's not an addition to your life. It's not just a new package for the same you. It is a brand new you. Here's what the Bible says, that the old is gone and the new has come, that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. His mercies are new every single morning. He didn't come just to make you better. He came to make you new. And in Revelation, Jesus says this, behold, I make all things new. If you want to try new, you need to give your life to Jesus because he is the only one who can satisfy the longing and the desire that is in every single one of our souls to be made new by Jesus. And this is gonna be important because for some of you, you've been following Jesus for a long time, but you're still new. Unlike a, a car that depreciates in value or a home where the market changes, as a Christian, no matter if you've been following Jesus for 50 years, you're still new. And for those of you who are not Christians and you're peering over the fence of faith and you're wondering, why should I give my life to Jesus? Why should I become a Christian? What, what, what difference will God make in my life? He'll make you new. And I want to show you four things that God wants to do in your life as a, as a Christian. And we're going to see it play out in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 19. The first thing is this, is when you become a Christian, you get a, a new faith. Now, we're walking verse by verse through the book of Acts. If you're new to redemption, this is what we do. We just go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Nine out of ten sermon series we do. We just pick a book and we study the book. I think this is the 30th week in Acts. We got about 40 more to go. Um, and we're in Acts chapter 9, and over the last three weeks, we have begun to see the origin stories of the Apostle Paul. Most of us know us as the Apostle Paul, but it didn't start as the Apostle Paul. He started as Saul of Tarsus. We know him today as the author of 
one-third of the New Testament. He writes 13 books of the Bible. He's a church-planting pastor. He's a missionary, one of the greatest theological minds in the world. But when we first meet him, he's not a missionary. He's a murderer. He's not a church planter. He's a persecutor of the church. Today, we're like, oh, he loves Jesus. But then he hates Jesus. And his whole life was destroying the church. And then what we see in Acts chapter 9 is he's on the way to Damascus. A bright light shines around him. The Lord Jesus speaks and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. The light blinds him, knocks him off his horse. He's blind for three days. He doesn't eat, nor does he drink. And he is on his way to Damascus to arrest a church leader named Ananias. He meets Jesus. They lead him to Ananias. And Ananias leads him to Jesus lays hands, prays for him, the scales fall off his eyes, and he goes from being lost to found, from blind to sight, from death to life, because when you meet Jesus, you become new. And we're going to see how Paul gets a new faith, but it's important for us to understand that we can't just read the Bible in isolation. Like, you don't just pick a verse and then be like, well, that's my verse. No, you have to read the text in context. And the Bible's a big book, right? And the beauty of studying the Bible is that we get the full story. And so Paul goes on, he writes multiple books, and he's always talking about his testimony. And so in order for us to really see what it was like before he met Jesus, we need to kind of gather a bunch of other texts throughout further writings. And let me just give you the origin story. Here's, here's what we see in Acts 22.3. Paul's writing about himself and he says, I am a Jew born of Tarsus of Sicilia, and I was brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, that's the, the leading rabbi of the day, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, and as all of you are today, Philippians, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, going all the way back to the book of Genesis. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, the best, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church, as to right Righteousness under the law, blameless. He was faultless, flawless. He, he, was, he had it all together. He was the elite, the best of the best. Galatians 1 says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently. I tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people, so extremely zealous that I was for the traditions of my father. Acts 26.9, as he's in court standing on trial he says this I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things as I opposed the name of Jesus that's who he was before he meets Jesus he was religious he was devoted he was zealous and he was wrong and then he met Jesus and everything in his life began to change because he got a new faith and faith in Jesus changes the way you view things in life. Let me show you how it works here. In verse 19, it says, For some days he was with the disciples in Damascus. 
And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. And they said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he come here for this same purpose? Remember, he's going there to persecute him and now he's preaching to them. And here's how the story unfolds. He says, to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength. And he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving, important word, proving that Jesus was the Christ. You know what that word Christ means? Just give you a hint. It's not Jesus' last name. That's what some people think. They're like, Jesus Christ, as if it's like Byron Ellis. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. And it means the anointed one, the holy one, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of the world. And so what he's doing right here is he's proving that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus is the only way in which a person can be saved. What he's doing is he's preaching the same message 2,000 years ago that we here at Redemption is still preaching to this day. That the only way for you to be saved is through Jesus. There is no other way in which a person can have eternal life, life everlasting, forgiveness of sins and grace from God. There is no other way for you to be saved but by Jesus. Your good works won't save you. Your good deeds won't save you. Your good vibes won't save you. Your magic crystals won't save you. The only way in which you can be saved is by placing your hope and trust and your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He's the only way. And some of you right now, your mind just exploded. You're like, Byron, that's very intolerant. I can't believe you would say that, how exclusive and narrow you are. Well, Jesus does say it is a narrow road. Broad is the road to destruction, but narrow is the path to life. Let me just, you're like, but don't all religions teach the same thing? What about Buddha? What about the Muhammad? What about Krishna? What about the blue-haired lady on TikTok who's selling me magic crystals for $29.99? What about her? Let me just quote to you Jesus. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He is not a way. He is the way. He's not a truth among many truths. He is the truth and the life. And the only way in order for you to be saved is by placing your faith in Jesus as your Lord. He's the only way for you to be saved. And the fact that many people are like, well, all religions teach the same thing is very offensive to other religions. So there you go. (laughs) How intolerant of you. But in our culture today, you can't say this. This is offensive and and narrow. And people don't like it when you say it because here's what most people people think. that, that, That we can all find our own journey and path to Jesus, to the Lord, to heaven. Everybody, just a good person. Do you know how you become a good person by comparing yourself to people who are worse than you. And that's called judging others. That's not very nice for a good person to do. The only way you can think you're good is by comparing yourself to people that you don't think are good. And so that's not, that's kind of a jerk thing to do. So you're not good either. (laughs) But our society, 
They think there's multiple paths to heaven. It really only boils down to three. And two of them are lies and one of them are truth. I'll give them to you right now. The first way is, is religion. You can be religious. What, what does that mean? That means works-based righteousness, as Paul would talk about. That your good works, if you follow this path and these ways and you follow these rules and these rituals, then, then God will love you. You're earning God's love through your good deeds. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds and you tilt the scale and maybe God sees it in your favor, he might let you into heaven. This is how every other religion in the world works, by the way. You have to pay off your karmic debt and reincarnate and live this life and give this much money and go to this holy place and follow this rules and read this translation of the scriptures and then maybe God will love you. But there's no guarantee. That's religion. And then some people, they're like, I don't want to do religion. And so they turn to what is rebellion, where there are no rules. You get to make up your own rules. There is no God. You are your own God. There is no truth. You just live your own truth. Do you, boo? That's you. <laughs> and you're just following your own path, right? You're just making it up as you go along. You know what the Bible calls that? Rebellion. And for many people, they only see these two options. They see, I can have religion. I don't want religion. So they run to rebellion. And then others are like, I don't want rebellion. And so then they run to religion. And then Paul says, there's a third option. It's called a relationship with Jesus. And that Jesus is the only way for us to be saved. Because religion won't save you and rebellion won't save you. Only Jesus is able to save you. And that's called having faith by placing your trust, not in your works, but in his. Not in your efforts, but in his. It's not about earning God's love, but rather receiving God's love through grace by faith. And it's about the relationship with Jesus that we don't make our way to God, but God through Christ has made his way to us. He lives the life that you never could live. He dies the death in your place for your sins. And three days later, he resurrected from the grave and he gave you a new life, both now and forevermore. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. It's not about your accomplishments. It's about what he has accomplished through the atonement on the cross. It's not about your works, but his works for you. That's faith. And it's the only way in which we are to be saved. And Saul has this recognition. He says, nothing I ever did in my life saved me. Who saved me? Jesus is the Christ. He's the only way to be saved. He's got a new faith. Well, what happens when you get this new faith Number two, it leads you to a new fight. You get a new faith. Yay! And you get a new fight. Oh. Following Jesus is going to, to be a fight. Here's what we see as the story goes on. He says, when many days had passed, the Jews are plotting to kill him. What a dramatic change, right? So he's going to kill Christians becomes a Christian, and now his former friends are now trying to kill him. We call that life change through Jesus, baby. <laughs> like sometimes when you follow Jesus, people are going to be like, wait, what? what? What just happened? Because he changes you. Because he makes you new. And so here's how the story goes. Now the Jews are trying to kill him. 
But their plot became known to Saul, and while they were watching the gates, they're, they're spying on him, day and night, in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night. They let him down through an opening in the wall, and they lowered him down in a basket. Like, he, he climbs out a window, and he sneaks out of town because they're, they're trying to kill him. Why? Because he got a new faith, and then he got a new fight. Anything worth having is worth fighting for. We know this in other areas of our life. Like if you want to have a good marriage, you're going to have to fight for your marriage. And I don't mean fighting against your husband, right? You fight with him for a good marriage. You're not fighting against him. But we do have to fight because conflict is the price we pay for intimacy. And so if you want to have a great marriage, you're going to have to fight for that marriage. The same thing with raising godly kids. Like you're not going to accidentally raise godly children, not in this world. No, nobody else is going to teach your kids about Jesus but, but you. And so you have to fight for the, for the kids. And if you're single and you're trying to live a life of purity before God and honor women or honor your, your boyfriend, fiance, honor yourself, it, it's going to take a fight. Fighting against lust and temptation and fighting against pornography and fighting against the things in this world. It's going to be a fight. But listen, it's always worth it, isn't it? Anything worth having is worth fighting for. Well, the same is true when it comes to your faith. Nobody grows in Jesus by osmosis. Right? You're like, you got to fight for it. If you want to follow Jesus, it's going to be a fight. If you want to grow in your faith, it's got to be a fight. If you want to grow in your understanding of the word of God, you got to fight against temptation. You got to fight against time. You got to fight against distractions. You got to fight against the systems of this world. You got to fight if you want to grow in your faith. This is why Paul, later in his life, he writes this to a young pastor named Timothy. He says, fight the good fight of faith because when you become a Christian, you get a new fight because you have a new faith. And so what do we see in the text here? We go back to the text. We recognize that he's in a, he's in a fight. And as a believer, we have to understand that it's amazing to follow Jesus, but at the same time, following Jesus means that sometimes there's going to be a fight. How many of you like reading books? Any, 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 okay, good, good. Um, all my fellow nerds, thank you. How many of you like watching movies? There we go, all right. So do you know there's a literary device called foreshadowing? You know what that is? Foreshadowing is when the author in the first chapter or early in the movie, reveals the plot. And if you miss it, you're going to miss out what happens. But if you catch it, you're going to feel really smart by the end. You're like, oh, I knew it. That's called foreshadowing. Well, what Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is doing here is he's giving us a little foreshadowing. Because this is the first of ten times in the book of Acts that Paul is going to be, going to try to kill him. He's going to get in a lot of trouble after this. Everywhere he goes, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be thrown in prison. He's going to be beaten. They're going to try to kill him, and he's going to sneak out of town. They're going to stone him, and not like stone like some of y'all used to do, but, you know, stone in a different way with some rocks trying to kill him. And then he gets up, and he goes back into the city, and then they try to kill him again. And then by the end of the book, he actually dies. This is going to be the rest of his life. You know why? Because he not only got a new faith, but he also got a new fight. Here's the lesson we need to learn from him. If you're going to preach the gospel, sometimes you're going to get in trouble. 
Like, if you're going to really stand on the word of God, especially in the world that we live in, not everybody's going to like you all the time, and not everybody's going to get along with you, and you're not going to get an applaud and a gold star sticker and a pat on the back for waving the Jesus flag. Sometimes you're going to get in trouble when you preach the gospel. Listen, I'm, I'm a pastor, and I've just come to the conclusion that I can't make everybody like me. I, I'm not a taco, and I just can't make everybody like me. I, I wish I could. I am by nature a people pleaser, which is a character flaw in me, and it's a sin that I'm repenting of, because if you try to please people, you're not going to be able to please God. And I've just come to the conclusion that if I'm going to pastor this church for the next 30 years, my job is not to have people like me, but to fall in love with him. And when you preach the gospel, sometimes people are going to get upset with you and angry with you, because it's not always popular But it is always true. And our job is not a popularity contest. Our job is to point people to Jesus. We are not here to be God's editors. We are here to be God's messengers and to preach the gospel, which means sometimes you're going to get in a little bit of trouble. My job, first and foremost, as a Christian, is to follow Jesus. My job as a pastor is to preach the full counsel of God's word. And when you do that, not everybody's going to like you all the time. But... It's necessary because you have a new faith. You also have a new fight. Now, when it comes to this in, in our church, what I've discovered is that there's, um, there, there's a couple of different groups of people who get the most offended at me. And going back to the first point, it's either the religious people or the rebellious people. See, the religious people, they'll come to our church and they'll get very offended. They're like, oh, I can't believe this church. There was people with coffee in the sanctuary and there was kids running around making a whole bunch of noise and the music was too loud and the service was too long and there were people raising their hands in church. Oh my gosh, they're so loud. This is church. Don't you know it's serious? Because here's what happens. Religious people take themselves too serious and they don't take God seriously enough. And so they go beyond the Bible and they make up rules that aren't actually in the Bible and they try to enforce them on people. That's religion. They say, oh, the pastor has long hair and his wife has purple hair or whatever color it is this week and they got full sleeve tattoos and I can't believe it. I'm never going back to this church again. Ah, and I'm like, good, thank you. Because I had one person literally come up to me and they said, they said, it's back when we were having church in the bar. And they came back to me and they said, which is a great way to weed out the religious people, by the way. Um, and, and, and they came up to me and they said, Pastor, I'm leaving this church. And I said, oh, why? And they said, because there's people smoking in the parking lot. I said, smoking what? <laughs> Cigarettes. And I was like, oh, thank God. You should have seen what they were smoking last week. Like, that's called sanctification. And so what what do we see here? The religious people are fighting against him. But what we're going to see later in the book is that the rebellious people are going to fight against him too. He's going to roll into pagan towns. And they're going to try to kill him. You know why? Because the only thing that is sin to them is calling something sin. They say, there's no such thing as sin except for saying something's a sin. There's no such thing as truth except for proclaiming that there is something that is true. 
Because to them, there is no God because they are their own gods. And they make their own rules and they follow their own patterns and they just invent whatever they want because to them, they are essentially their own gods. And nobody can tell them what. They just follow my heart. I'm just going to follow my heart. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do me. I'm going to, I'm going to practice self-care. <laughs> and the Bible says, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? And so the religious people get very offended because here's the reality is the Bible does say there is right and wrong, truth and lies, heaven and hell, good and evil. And the world says what God says is good is evil, and God says, no, what you call evil is actually what I declare is good. And preaching this is not going to get you a lot of fans today. But our job is not to please people. Our job is to please God. And so whenever I, I preach on this, it, it offends but the gospel, as Christians, we shouldn't be offensive, but we shouldn't be surprised when people are offended. Because there is truth and there is lies. There is good and evil, there is the Holy Spirit, and then there is unclean demons, unholy spirits. And to the religious people, they will get offended. To the rebellious people, they will be offended. But I've just discovered this. If I can offend both groups, I'm doing my job right. Because our job is to have a relationship with Jesus. And sometimes as a pastor, I, I realize I'm just going to get in trouble sometimes. And if you're going to come to redemption, thank you for joining me in the fight. <laughs> because when you become a Christian, you get a faith. And if you want to live out that faith, sometimes you've got to be ready for the fight. Which leads to the third point. Is when you become a Christian, you get a new family. L look how the story continues here. It says, and when he come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. I love this. But they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. Like, could you blame them, though? Like, hey, weren't you the guy who just tried to murder me, and now you're signing up for my small group? <laughs> Fool me once. Shame on me. Fool me twice. It's like, I just imagine in small group, they're all sitting around. They're like, all right, everybody bow your head and close your eyes. Keep one eye open on you, buddy. Like, who wants to have Paul join your serve team? One, two, three, not it. <laughs> but, but watch what happens, because this is, this is another reason why we study book by book here at Redemption. It's important for you to, to, to see the unfolding beauty of the Bible, because we're seeing Saul's transformation, but at the other thing, we're seeing the transformation of the church. We're not only seeing the individual, we're seeing the community respond here. Because they don't want to let him in. They're scared of him. They're afraid of him. But all of a sudden, somebody that we've met before is going to show up. We saw him in Acts chapter 4. Look at verse 27. But Barnabas. Do you remember Barnabas? Joseph, who sold his field to donate it to the church to help them get to that next season. He was a leader in the early church. He was an encourager, such an encourager. They changed his name from Joseph to Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. It's a, it's a nickname. It's kind of like, you know, when they call a big guy tiny or something. But this is like Barnabas, encourager. What is Barnabas going to do? He's going to step in and he's going to put his arms around Saul. 
when nobody wanted to take him in, Barnabas stood up and defended him. Changed the world forever because Barnabas saw something in Saul that nobody else saw in him. Look what happens. But Barnabas took him in and brought him before the apostles and declared to him how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And at Damascus, he'd preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went out and among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and he disputed against the Hellenists. So now he's fighting again. But there were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down from Caesarea, sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, most commentators will say that the gap between Acts 9 and Acts 13, where Paul is commissioned off as the missionary that we know him as today, is 14 years. So we're going to pick up in January with chapter 10. The gap between now and when we see Paul go off on his missionary journey, 14 years. We don't think about that, do we? We typically envision Paul and we're like, yeah, that's Paul. Like, of course he planted churches and took the gospel to the West and wrote one third of the New Testament and 13 books of the Bible. Like, he's Paul, of the greatest theological mind in the world. Like, we all know Paul, especially if you were raised Baptist, growing up as a kid. Anytime your Sunday school asked you a question, there was only two answers. It was Jesus, and if it's not Jesus, it's Paul. Like, you know Paul! But yet, we see that when he becomes a Christian, it was 14 years of development before he became the apostle that we know him as of today. And you have to wonder, like, what was Paul doing in those 14 years? I'll tell you what he was doing. He was doing life in a local church, just like you're doing today. That's how important the local church is. If the local church was that important for Paul, how much more could it be important for us? And here's what I want you to know because it's what we see that happens in Paul's life is the church is not optional, it's essential. If you want to grow in your faith, become who God's created you to be, you want to accomplish great things for the Lord, if you want to perceive your destiny, if you want to use your gifts to make a difference, if you want to see what God can do in you and through you, it happens in the context of a local church. Paul would not be who he was if it wasn't for the church. He got a new faith. He got a new fight. And you're not going to endure that faith in that fight if you're not surrounded by the family. The church is not optional. The church is essential. I'll show you why. Because God is a father. The church is a family. And the father wants for the sons and daughters to be a part of his family. The church is a family. I'm a dad. I got two girls. And I have a personal relationship with each one of my girls. Like, and they're different. Okay, I don't know if you have, you know, like two, two girls or you have multiple kids, right? They're not the same. They, they, they're different, right? And so my girls are different. One's really high strung and one's really calm and, and, and one's very compliant and the other one's unhinged and uh, one likes Starbucks and one likes Rayos. And so I know the difference between the two of them and so I like to tailor 
the way that I spend time with them based upon their own personalities. I have a personal relationship with each of my girls. But how would my heart feel if my daughters grew up and didn't have a relationship with each other? My heart would break as a dad. How do you think God feels when the brothers and sisters, when the family says, I don't need you? I believe the father heart of God breaks to see so much division in the church. Because you're his son, you're his daughter, and together we're a family. I know it's popular today to say, I don't need the church. I am the church. By the way, that is a totally Western, ignorant, and narcissistic thing to say. Like you yourself. Just me and Jesus, right? It's nowhere in the Bible. The reality is, is you are not the church. We, together, are the church. The word church in the Greek literally means the gathering, the, the gathered together, called out and gathered together. It's the word ekklesia. You cannot gather with yourself. <laughs> but together we can gather. And together we become the church. Like on your own, you can only do so much. But together we could do much more. Yesterday was an example of that. As a church yesterday, we gave away 500 frozen turkeys to families in need. Was it Turkey Day giveaway amazing? Come on. Total cost of that was about $16,000. Could you have given away 500 turkeys by yourself? No. But together we did it. That's the church. That's what happens when we become a family. Paul could not have accomplished the things that he did if he didn't have a family to help craft and shape and build and develop and nurture and lead him into his calling. Every single one of you, the same thing that God did for him is what God wants to do for you. And it happens in the context of a local church. And so for us, we have this idea that like, I don't need the church. I don't need the church. That's foreign in the pages of the Bible. I'll show you. We're studying the book of Acts right now. What is the theme of the book of Acts? The birth of the church. And then Paul later goes on. He writes 13 books of the Bible. Do you know who he writes those books to? Not you. He writes them to a church. And even the books that he didn't write to the church, he wrote to pastors who are doing what? Leading a church. Church is not optional. It's essential. And here's what happens. When you treat church as optional, eventually it's going to become unnecessary in your life. Because what happens is the, the more you miss church, the less you miss the church. And then it becomes a habit. And then it becomes your life. Especially for those of you who are parents. Listen, yesterday my girls, they got to serve at the Turkey Day giveaway. It's their favorite thing that we do all year round. And as a, as a dad, I couldn't be more happy to watch my girls serving. And me and Ashley were talking and, you know, my parent, my, my kids, they, they think I'm a little strict sometimes because we have, we have really tight rules around our time and what we're investing ourselves in. And so they don't do very many extracurricular activities because we're wanting to teach them to invest in the kingdom of God. Because at the end of the day, 
These things might only last for five years, 10 years, but these are gonna be lasting for 10,000 years into the future. And so I wanna build my kids into the world changers that I believe God's created to be. And that happens in the context of a local church. And as parents, I love you, but if you treat church as optional, do not be surprised when your kids grow up and think it's unnecessary for them. Because you taught them that. You taught them that other things were more important than being in the house of the Lord. And so when they graduate and go off to college and they deconstruct their faith and they don't have a home church and start making bad decisions and then all of a sudden they've denounced the faith, you model for them what you're going to see in the future. And if you treat church as optional, your kids will think it's unnecessary and eventually irrelevant to them. Be in the house of the Lord. It's not optional. It is essential for us. So how do we, how do we grow in this? Well, I'll give you three ways. First, real quick, find a small group. What's a small group? It, it's, a, it's believers that you do life with. We have small groups all across Southeast Texas. We have them in Beaumont, Orange, Lumberton, Mid-County. We have about 24 right now. And they're coming to a close, but in January, we're going to be opening discipleship classes, and it'll be here at the church. we got Freedom. Can we give it up for Freedom Ministries? Come on. <laughs> church membership, and for the first time, we're doing a Theology 101. So if you ever want to learn some big Greek words, come join me up here, and we're going to do a systematic theology class, and then small groups will kick off following after that. But do life with people. Number two, join a serve team. Serve team, start next steps. You find a team, you get in a group, you do life, and then you be a part of something that's bigger than you. Use your gifts and talents to further the kingdom of God. Can we give it up for our serve teams from the parking lot to the pulpit? They make redemption happen. And then number three, become a member. At Redemption, we actually do church membership. I know it's not normal for churches these days to, to do church membership, but we do church membership. And we open it up twice a year. It's a five-week class where we explain our doctrine and our vision and we align everybody together and we really build the tight core of our church. So become a member. Do you know what? The, the church calls the church a body and everybody has, has, guess what? Members, right? Whether fingers, hands, hair, head, nose. Do you know what you call a, a nose that doesn't have a body? Nobody knows. And the Bible knows nothing of a believer that is not connected to the body. Saul spent 14 years in a local church before God ever sent him out to do the ministry God's called him to do. How much more important is it for us to be involved in the family of God? So here, here's, here's what I want to do before we move on to the, to the final point. I love just preaching through the Bible and, and I, I love it whenever it lines together that I don't have to force anything. And so I want to look right here at this text right here in verse 31. And let me say this real quick. <clears throat> I don't care if you go to redemption or not. I love redemption. I think you'll love redemption. I want you to be a part of this church, right? But I also know that our church is not for everybody. I get that. I understand that. I just want you to be in church. And so if redemption is your home church, pour your life into it. And if it's not, find you one that is. There's hundreds of great churches all across Southeast Texas. I just want you to be in a church, whether it's a big church, a small church, a mini church, a micro church, a mega church, a house church, a couch church, a purpose-driven church, a pizza-driven church, a presence-driven church. I don't care. As long as they preach the Bible, 
as long as they love Jesus and they shepherd your heart. Just find you a church. Three people like that. (laughs) So let me look at verse 31 real quick. It says, the church was being built up, growing, and it multiplied. I love whenever I get to talk about what God's doing in our church and it's not forced. Because that word right there, multiply, is very important to us who call Redemption Home. Because right now we are in our multiply initiative. It's a two-year generosity campaign that we've been giving to to purchase the new building and to give to missions and to, to renovate and to move forward with what God has for us here as a church. The goal of the church is to multiply and to reach more people with the message of life change through Jesus. And so what I want to do is I'm going to give you an end of the year multiply update. For those of you who call Redemption Home, this is for you. For those of you who don't call Redemption Home, this is going to be really awesome for you to hear because you're sitting in on a family meeting right now and you're going to get to see how much this family loves you. So what is generosity? What is multiply? It's a generosity initiative. Yes, it's, it's us giving money to the vision that God has given us. And so let me just give you an update on where we are because of your generosity. So here's how we did in 2022 versus 2023. I'm going to share with you the transparency, financial updates of the church and some of the metrics that we have going on because I believe transparency builds trust. An entire PDF document is going to be made at the end of the year and sent out to you so you can have a review of the finances here. But in 2022, you guys gave 400, or our attendance was 412 and a record attendance of 592. In 2023, Our average attendance is 557 with a high of 698. And in quarter three, our average attendance was 614 people. And altogether, your church has seen a 49% growth and increase this year alone. Isn't that amazing? We had 144 people go through next steps in 2022. And in the first three quarters, we've had 156 in three quarters alone this year. Praise God, people getting involved in the church. If you haven't been to Next Steps, it's the first Sunday of every month. We have one more left. So jump in, be a part of the team. Last year, we gave 60,833 to missions. Praise God. This year alone, so far, we have given $88,587 back into our local community and into global missions from Beaumont to beyond. Here's why I love Multiply. It's because it's so much bigger than a building. It's about building the kingdom of God. It's about giving beyond ourselves to something that is bigger than ourselves. It's not about a building. It's about building the kingdom of God. And you guys have given nearly $90,000 back into God's kingdom this year. It's amazing. Last year as a church, we spent $807,000. So far this year, we have spent, I want you to recognize this, with a 49% increase in attendance, we have spent $849,000. I don't know if you recognize that, that we grew by 50% and our budget only increased by one because we're practicing good stewardship here. We're working really hard to say no to a lot of things. 
And so last year we pulled in 823,000 with a savings of 15,000. And this year, because of your generosity, so far we've pulled in 1.274 million and we have saved towards the new building, $424,944 towards what God's doing. So next time you wonder why we don't have donuts on a Sunday morning anymore, just remember, God is multiplying it. And so here we are sitting as a church right now, when it comes to our capital campaign, out of a $1.44 million needed for the renovations, this year alone, you guys have saved $630,000 towards the new building renovations. God is multiplying his church. And so on December 3rd, we're doing our heart for the house. It's an end of the year giving that we do every year. It's a one-time above and beyond special offering where we give to God because he has been so gracious to us. And as a church, all year round, you've been giving and giving and serving and loving and pouring out into our community. It's our time to give back so we can start looking forward to what God's gonna do. And here's my dream for Heart for the House on December 3rd is that we would have a one-time miracle offering of $120,000. You say, why that number? Because if we could hit that number, then we will be at 50% complete with our Multiply project. Isn't that amazing? 50% complete already? Didn't we just start it in April? We'll be 50% complete, and then we can get ready to move into that new building faster than we can add a fifth service. Come on, somebody, praise Jesus, right? And so I just, wanna, I just wanna say thank you so much. Thank you for the generosity. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your concern. Thank you for your cares. Thank you for believing in the vision of the church. Thank you for being patient. Paul waited 14 years before he saw God move. Thank you for the patience it takes to be able to do what God's called us to do. So I just wanna say thank you. God gets the glory, but you get the gratitude for those of you who are involved. Come on, let's just give it up for what God's doing. And for those of you who are new to redemption, I just want you to say there's never been a better time for you to jump in and get involved. God is moving here and the church is multiplying and it's amazing to see. Well, here's how we're gonna close. The fourth point is you get a new future. I wanna go back to verse 21 and look at this. It says, all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem to those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for the same purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When we first meet him, he is a murderer, but now he's a missionary. When we first meet him, he was a persecutor of the church, but now he's preaching the gospel. When we first meet him, he hates Jesus. And now he is proving to them that Jesus is the Christ. Why? Because he got a new faith. He got a new fight. He got a new family. And you add it all together, and what does that do? It creates a new future for you. Because Jesus doesn't just come to make you better. He's not an add-on to
to your life. He's not an addition to your life. He wants to give you a brand new life with a new heart, with a new nature, with a new identity, with a new community, with a new destiny. You get a new faith. You get a new fight. You get a new family. And you get a new future. God has placed eternity in your heart. And nothing will fill it until you are filled with the love that only Jesus can give.